Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Sarah Condon, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host, RJ Heyman and David Zoll. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Conference. I hope the weeks uh, in between our last meeting have treated you both well. How is it going? What's the what's the word in Houston town? Good, right, RJ? Things are humming along. It's beautiful. It's getting it's hot. It's starting to feel like hot. summer. It's actually yeah. been a pretty mild spring, but now the, the heat the heat is on. It's on the street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like we just missed the big drama in New York. Sarah, you were telling me about the Met Gala and how just all hell broke loose when the Catholic imagination was engaged. What went on? So the Met Gala, which I'm told is the Oscars of the East Coast, but this year the theme was Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic imagination, something like that. And a lot of people I know were super outraged by it. None of them Catholic, which was interesting. Um, <laughs> a, a, lot of, a lot of Episcopalians were really upset about sort of, you know, like Rihanna was in a mitre, which I thought was amazing. I try to avoid Facebook fights. You just know what hell is going to feel like when you're in the middle of a Facebook fight. You're like, oh, this is what hell is going <laughs> to feel like. It's going to have a pregame. And and there was a woman, purgatory, who's, purgatory. Yeah, exactly. a woman who's ordained, who's just like, you know, the clothes are like the most important part. Like you put on the clothes and blah, 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 Leviticus, blah, 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 Jesus. And I was like, well, I hope we're not the same as the priests in Leviticus. And, um, I'm not Jesus last I checked. And, you know, it's just, we're talking about some pretty important stuff today. And it occurred to me, especially given what we talked about at our conference, that people really need to pick what is upsetting because <laughs> it just can't be everything you know what I mean yeah find a bigger hill to die on exactly. a slightly larger hill exactly you know? like a friend of mine was like well you know they could have spent all this money on the poor and I'm like isn't that in scripture? Like, you know what I mean? Like all this money they spent on costumes. I'm like, I don't know. Do we have to feel bad about everything? Like I don't have that kind of energy. So anyway, I loved it. It was fabulous. You should go look at the photographs as long as you're not easily offended. Yeah. And I guess I'm, I'm fine with people making fun of celebrities. Like if you're that famous and want to be that famous, you kind of set yourself up. But the irony is, you know, I've been teaching this class at St. Martin's called uh, religion and politics. Uh, you know, impolite topics for a dinner party, but hopefully not for church. It's been really fun, and I've learned a lot. But one thing I learned is that basically all the ecclesiastical finery from incense to processions to vestments to the layout of sort of the classic, um, you know, Gothic-style church, you know where it all comes from? Like, all of it. Tell us, RJ. It comes from Constantine's conversion when the church came out of the shadows and became part of the imperial, not really power structure, because it wasn't the official religion, it was a tolerated religion, but suddenly it took on all these trappings of empire, and it's not Christian. It's stuff that was done in pagan temples before Christianity. You know, so it just shows all this stuff you think is essential to the faith was kind of a fourth uh, century innovation that came about from the merging of religion and political authority. 
40. I always thought that the the Met Gala is like this, it's at the Met. Right. It's supposed to be deeply artistic. Yeah. And from what the pictures I saw, and certainly there is, I think, kind of a nihilistic or I don't even know what you would call it, probably a little bit of poking fun in some of these or mean-spiritedness. But it's supposed to be so artistic. And every time I've seen the Met Gala stuff, the, the flowers are just off the wall. And can we have room for just artistic expression? And as we all know, the Catholic imagination is so fundamental to how we think of visual life in our world. And it seems like it's at least drawing attention to that aspect of the Catholic legacy is can't be at least all bad. It seemed kind of cool. In fact, people talked about us being mocked. I'm like, that's the deal with Christianity, yo. I know. Like that's part of it. Yeah. That's kind of what we, yeah. And if you're going to mock Christianity, the clothes are a good place to start. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Like, I mean, I know that people would, the, the deeper ideas, the, the, the crucified savior is what's truly mocks yes. us, but yes. the, the clothes are very silly. You know, this is the, it, part of me as a as a non-ordained person, I look at it and I think, you know, almost the extent to which you get in, I, I have plenty of Anglo-Catholic sure. friends. I do respect their views on these things. And there is something, the, the tradition, there's, there's always a reason, you know, their clothes almost become a living sermon. And I do appreciate that. However, just put in terms of trying to connect faith with actual everyday life, when you come dressed is the some of the times that people you think want to dress you want to say you look like an alien and or a circus creature or Or i don't even know what scarlet o'hara right like you pulled the curtains down you wrapped them around and you're like it's a cope now i mean there's like websites (laughs) dedicated to how silly some of this stuff is one of my closest like church friends is a guy named keith voetz who's like totally anglo-catholic and he was not insulted by this at all like he thought it was really wonderful that people are like seeing this stuff and people are talking about this stuff and i think you know for some people the clothes have become the piety this rubbed them the wrong way it's really yeah it's funny though the first time i saw rj Heyman in a collar i did have to stifle back um a guffaw yeah, me too. A every laughter. day like every i thought day to myself I... you sound like this my guy... wife dave you sound like my wife <laughs> This guy, <laughs> this guy, yeah, we like, yeah. love to see him in like a Beretta and the whole. It nine. is. I said this uh, before. I, it's very helpful to get around true. the hospital. You can go anywhere in that thing. It is nuts the okay. access you have. Well, guys, let's let's switch gears to something that is serious, and I think, but also extremely artistic. I don't know if you've watched Donald Glover, Childish Gambino's new music video for "This Is America." It comes in a very interesting moment right now. Clearly, we're thinking a lot about race, and some of these black artists. I think I've. I feel personally like Glover is the one who's almost in a class by himself. I'm just a huge Atlanta fan, and that's not – I almost hesitate to say it publicly for fear of you know signaling something. But the, I uh, that show, it every single time I watch it, I'm blown away by how much of a master this guy is. But then he drops this um, – this music video and he's also on um, Saturday Night Live last week and he kind of can do no wrong and it's also as RJ you pointed out in your conference talk we have the Kanye West uh, Donald Trump bromance unfolding and everyone asking these questions but had you guys watched this music video because it really is worth seeing Have, have you seen it Sarah 
Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. I really hope it becomes part of the curriculum in the Southern Studies Department at Ole Miss. That was like the first thing I thought, you know, because I that's like my, I love, that department was seminary for me. There was a whole class where we looked at pictures of lynchings, you know, and how celebratory they were and all these people gathered under them and, you know, the postcards that got made and, you know, the numbers are so staggering. It was like one black man a week for, I think, 30 years was lynched. And um, so to to see him pull that thread all the way through to now. Describe the music video to people. It's interesting. He varies. And actually the article that we were reading about this pointed it out um, in a really great way. He has no shirt on. And so it starts with him doing this dance and it almost feels like tribal, but it's also like minstrel. You know, immediately you, you sort of think when he starts dancing, like, oh, this is going to be like a normal, you know, like video. Mm -hmm. And then it launches into something incredibly violent. I mean, there's a shooting that happens right off. And then there's this just ghastly shooting that happens of a black choir that, you know, He's the one shooting. Yeah, he's the he's dancing Which one is second. So crazy. He's he, he's like walking through this huge warehouse and he's dancing and it looks kind of herky jerky. Yeah, and he's got a sh as you say he's got a shirt off, but his body's a little you know it's it's not uh, DMX up no. there. He's a little kind of Which chubby. Awesome. But he's doing this dance that you almost wonder if it's intentional. But then there's like school kids doing it with him, and then he shoots a black guitar player in the head, uh -huh. and then he immediately starts dancing. And then it kind of keeps going in this really massive way you're right he takes he opens a door and he smiles and there's a black choir singing yeah. something beautiful someone hands him a submachine gun and he kills yes. them all but then he keeps dancing even towards the end where sort of the camera pans out and there's all these cars and there's just what's so what you'll miss if you don't look for is there's this one very like stereotypical of the black women that you see sexualized in rap videos just sitting on a car you know and she's not you're like what is she there for but i mean it's all sort of saying something it's like as hard as it is to watch, I think it's necessary to watch it several times because there's so many things that he's trying to say. Let me read what Doreen St. Felix in The New Yorker wrote about the carnage and chaos of Childish Gambino's This Is America video. And, you know, it's rare, by the way, that we would highlight something so specific as a single music video, especially when people might not have seen it, but it really is worth your time. It's, it's, it's something, I think, um, groundbreaking. This is what Doreen writes. She says, this is what it's like, the video seems to say, to be black in America. At any given time, vulnerable to joy or to destruction when his character is not dancing glover donald glover charles campino he is killing a lot of black people hate the video glover forces us to relive public traumas and barely gives us a second to breathe before he forces us to dance there is an inescapable disdain sewn into the fabric of this is america there is joy, there's paranoia, there's violence, there's fear, there's artistry, there's wackiness, um, there's funk, you know. RJ, where are you with uh, This Is America and, or Donald Glover? My immediate reaction, uh, you know, it does open on such a joyful note. And then there's that, you know, execution style headshot. I'm just like, oh, yeah. you know, it, it hit me on a pretty gut level. It reminded me of uh, Get Out, you know, in, in this incredibly ambiguous and fraught relationship that America has with being black. You know, that's so much of what we celebrate as a culture, um, sports and music 
and a lot of things are associated with blackness, you know. And at the same time, there's this incredible fear, you know, that white America has of blackness. And, I, and that seems like a controversial statement to say in of itself. I know that there are a lot of people in our nation who want to say that we live in kind of a post-racial world, but I, I just don't think that's true. I don't know. I just, it makes me sad. It makes me really sad, especially as the father of two teenage boys. I know that if they weren't white, there are conversations that I would be having with them that I'm not having with them now about how they interact with police and how they carry themselves. And the whole thing just makes me, uh, it makes me very sad for black men in America who get incredibly mixed messages, lifted up in some ways and in other ways are just um, feared and, and torn down. And I say that having actually no idea what that's like, but those are my thoughts. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing that you sent along the next piece that is by Ta-Nehisi Coates in The Atlantic, the headline is, I'm not black, I'm Kanye, which takes on this as well. And I think it really comes into contact with a lot of the things that we talk about more regularly. Race is clearly not a subject in which any of us are, um, uh, we're all on the same side of that, that white-black divide. But So there's a little sheepishness, especially in our culture today, about even talking about this at all. But I'm glad we are today, and I'm glad that we have this article from ta Coates because it talks about both Kanye and Michael Jackson. Donald Glover is the person I'm paying closest attention to on this. I think he's the, the most interesting, at least right now. There's also probably, if you read The New Yorker profile of him recently— there's a lot of other things going on with that man. But he was like a homeschooled, um, I think, Seventh-day Adventist. Did you know that Donald Glover wrote the character Kenneth on 30 Rock? And so very specifically, so if you remember that character and how backwoods and country and weird he Little was. Little Kenneth Allen. That was all Donald Glover's childhood. So if you want to know more wow. about Donald Glover, watch Kenneth on 30 Rock. Well, it's, no it, Glover is one of these people <laughs> that is, has been greeted initially with a lot of skepticism from the black community because he's so conversant in white humor and tropes and references. And there's a deep suspicion of that, uh, for better or worse. He's been up against a lot of skepticism from his own people. And then uh, he's kind of, now he's transitioned to being their champion. And I think he's already weary of being seen as this lodestar. The, one of the quotes in uh, the New Yorker profile was like, I'm not interested in being your woke male Beyonce. But yeah, it's my dream. RJ was. RJ. As long as he can hey, wear his Beyonce collar. Beyonce went, went to school a mile away from me. She's Houstonian. Just going to call it out. Hey now. Um, hey now. Well, here's what ta, ta who, uh, you know, is a, a bit of a celebrity in his own right. He says, there's nothing in this tale. He's talking about Kanye's uh, sort of, you know, public flirtation with Donald Trump and, and sort of free thinking Candace Owens and the intellectual dark web, which I think is just totally of a piece with Kanye's uh, fascinating persona and personality. But he says he sort of th sees it as uh, evidence of Kanye's uh, con continued mental instability, which is one of the things we also love about Kanye. Anyway, uh, he says there's nothing original in this tale and there's ample evidence beyond Kanye that humans were not built to withstand the weight of celebrity. But for black artists who rise mm. to the heights of Michael Jackson and Kanye West, the weight is more because they come from communities in desperate need of champions. Kurt Cobain's death was a great tragedy for his legion of fans. Tupac's was a tragedy for an entire people. When brilliant black artists fall down on the stage, they don't fall down alone. 
And then he goes on to describe what it was like actually seeing, because the, the essay opens with him talking about what it was like as a young black man to sort of worship Michael Jackson, but then also see as Michael Jackson slowly transformed his appearance and the kind of the self-hatred and the just confusion that that um, brought with it, it uh, among his peers. But he talks about seeing Michael in uh, 2001 at the 30th anniversary of his sort of uh, debut in show business doing the moonwalk and he says seeing MJ do the moonwalk I was watching a miracle a man had been born to a people who controlled absolutely nothing and yet he had achieved absolute control over the thing that always mattered most his body and some would say his face but then he, he goes on to this is the the paragraph I think that uh, really sings here. It says, the gift of black music, of black art, is unlike any other in America because it is not simply a matter of singular talent or even of tradition or lineage, but of something more grand and monstrous. When Michael Jackson sang and danced, when Kanye West samples or rhymes, they are tapping into a power formed under all the killing, all the beatings, all the rape and plunder that made America. The gift can never wholly belong to a singular artist, free of expectation and scrutiny. Because the gift is no more solely theirs than the suffering that produced it. Michael Jackson did not invent the moonwalk. When West raps, and I basically know now, we get racially profiled, cuffed up and hosed down, pimped up and hoed down. The we is instructive. What Kanye West seeks is what Michael Jackson sought, liberation from the dictates of that we. All right, guys, before I... Uh, go to town about this. Where where are you with this article? There's just so much in it that I'm not quoting. But yeah, I'm the one who sent it. I mean, I'm th- I've been thinking about Kanye a bit because I mentioned him in my talk in New York City. You know, the the tweet he sent about Dragon Energy to Trump and the Make America Great, you know, hat uh, tweet with the 15 fires and the signature and and I and I even when I said it, I had mixed emotions. You know, and then the very next week there was that. Um, that video that went viral where Kanye, you know, talked about slavery being a choice and getting uh, sort of read the riot act. And so, and so I, it just caught my attention. Uh, and I did think that what Coates said about, you know, the desire for freedom, that's a universal human desire. And what's also universal is that um, the law increases the trespass, as, as Paul says in Romans, that when people feel like they have to be something uh, that they have to earn something, by and large, it, it makes them run, it makes them act out. It makes them do stuff that they might not have done other way. And I, I could, I could sympathize with Kanye's desire to be, um, to be free, you know, it reminded me of the great, uh, OJ Simpson documentary that came out a few years ago, that that's what OJ Simpson wanted. You know, he, he wanted to not, he just wanted to be OJ Simpson. He didn't want to be kind of a black role model or what Charles, Charles Barkley said, um, you know, Dave, your favorite basketball player, Philadelphia 76 or great Charles Barkley. You know, he said, I'm not a role model. He was kind of a bad boy during his years and, and there were big cries for him to be a role model. And he said, I'm not a role model. I'm a basketball player. And it also just occurred to me that, I don't know, not to make it too Christian, but to bring it back to Christianity, what is, what's so beautiful about Christianity is that there is kind of total freedom. Like, you can say anything. You can do anything. You are forgiven before you said it. Nothing you can do or say will separate you from God's love. And that's an incredibly liberating thing. And then on the other side of that, you know, I think about what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, yes, all things are lawful but not all things are helpful. 
you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are good. And so in the context of that unconditional love and freedom is the space to ask yourself, okay, I can do, I am free, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I can do anything. Is what I'm doing helpful or not? You know, Kanye's not, it doesn't seem like he's there. It seems like he's reacting pretty, pretty strongly, but I understand the extent of his reaction because the weight of the law is so enormous. Yeah. Sarah. I guess I think about kids when I read stuff like this, that's always what comes into my mind. Um, I remember being a teenager and become, you know, I was, my parents are liberal for Mississippi. Um, and, uh, so we talked about race relations stuff a lot. And I was at a church that was very involved in that stuff. And I remember like getting 17 magazine in, um, which I loved as a teenager and not seeing any black women in it, not seeing any young black teenagers in it and thinking like, Oh, this is so weird. Like, so where do they go? <laughs> like, what is the stuff they read? Like they can't just get the stuff that I get. And you know, my parents were unusual in that when we lived in Nashville, Tennessee, the daycare that they sent me to was li literally an all black daycare. I was the only white kid in the daycare. It was run out of Miss Virginia's house. So it was like a neighborhood home daycare and Miss Virginia had two teenage daughters. They were probably 13 and 16 and they were huge Michael Jackson fans, like huge. And so it was like the eighties and it was when his videos would come out. And, um, for some reason they really liked me. And so it would be me and a couple other kids and we get like nap time. We'd get like snuck up to their bedrooms and we'd get to watch the release of like thriller. Like I remember watching thriller launch on MTV with these girls, which was such a cool thing for them to bring me into. But I remember watching Michael Jackson get wider and wider. And I don't know those now women, but I wondered what that must have felt like for them. And I, I appreciated what Coates said, because I think, yes, there is a huge weight, a weight that I'm actually not sure anybody can withstand. I think that Donald Glover is really wise to say, look, I can't carry this weight for the whole black mm. community. But there is definitely a longing for someone to say, we are a beautiful people. We are a people with an incredible culture and we are people that deserve to be loved. You know, I think that's a profound need. This is uh, the classic thing about Michael's like, to what extent was it self-hatred and sort of negation of his blackness and what extent was he doing something artistic and actually more quote unquote inclusive? Was he trying to incorporate all of humanity into his artwork. And I actually think that's what he was doing. And people who needed him to be a more specific, and maybe he was naive to try and do that. Actually, right. he was clearly naive to try and do that. But it was very complicated, I think, the whole plastic surgery thing. And I sometimes wonder if part of the real liability of the identity politics circus that we're currently in is that we boil people down to one single thing that they're allowed to be and that their collective identity as black people trumps any other thing. And, you know, maybe I say that as a white guy, so what do I know? But I do, I know artistically right. it doesn't work. Artistically it doesn't work. Maybe sociopolitically it's important that that happen. And clearly Beyonce right. is trying to do both. You know, she's trying to be super artistic and say, we are this beautiful people. Michael Jackson was thinking more in terms of the human race. He was thinking about aliens. <laughs> he was thinking about men and women. Be and, and he was trying to integrate yeah. everyone into the vision. And that, I would say, was a perhaps more insane project, but it was something that I don't think Coates is allowing for here. I also don't think that, I get very wary of the idea that 
that, that suffering and the only thing that produces great black art is suffering. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty fresh understanding of it. Michael right. saw his gift as something from God. Mm. You know, like Coates has no, uh, there's no hope in any of his writing. And he's, he's the first person to say that. And he does not believe in God and the whole piece is about God dying. So Michael had a hopeful view that what his standing as a black person was not the ultimate defining characteristics of who he was. Now, again, that might be naive in light of social realities in America, but artistically, I think it is fascinating and is what draws us back. So I don't know, really know what else to say about this, except for I'm very fascinated to see where Glover goes with it all. And I'm glad that he's poking fun about the celebrity thing. And, you know, I don't think Michael had anyone to look up to it. Just like Elvis had no one to look up to. There was no one of that magnitude who was black that Michael had to look up to and all of his music. Thank God for Quincy Jones. Yeah. You know, thank God for Quincy Jones. Well, all of his music, even till his death was extremely black. He wasn't trying to, I mean, yes, yes. He was trying to do some Charlie Chaplin stuff in there and we are the world. But remember that was the great statement of his anthropology. We are the world. And it was ridiculously overblown, but it was also kind of beautiful. So all that to say is it sounds remarkably complicated and I really hope that Donald survives this with his life intact. I think, I wonder if like Coates is the kind of, he he kind of represents exactly what Kanye seems to be rebelling against. And of course, be interesting to see how that continues because there's clearly a a more and more pronounced sense of prescribed speech around all sorts of people. And I'll be the, the great question that Coates brings up, and I think it's the question, is what will Kanye's new record be like? I feel like this whole podcast is worth it to listen to you talk about Michael Jackson. Like next next <laughs> yes. time's podcast is just going to be Dave talking about Michael Jackson for an hour. So get ready, folks. If people want the great work about Michael Jackson, which Coates is not into, it's Margot Jefferson, who is also a black cultural critic. Uh, her book called On Michael, and it is... I think it's as good a work of cultural criticism as has been written. So people should check that out. But the next one, let's move. <laughs> Turned out I did talk too much about Spider-Man. <laughs> right there. <laughs> Turns out I did talk too much about Spider-Man. Oh, people don't want to be lectured by me about Michael Jackson. Um, oh, I go love figure. It. Go for it, baby. <laughs> the next piece is from Stanley Fish, the great literary critic writing in the New York Times called Transparency is the Mother of Fake News. And he is combating a uh, piety out there, which I think is super interesting. And on the other side of the spectrum here saying the idea that transparency is uh he's challenging of whether or not it's an actually uh, an undeniably good thing or even a possible thing fish is taking issue with what he calls techno utopians whose mantra is quote information wants to be free uh and these people who believe that the promised land predicted by the authors of every technological advance the printing press the telegraph the radio television the internet is just around the corner It is a land in which potential is finally realized with no one hoarding information or controlling access or deciding who speaks and who doesn't. Their deepest claim, so deep that they're largely unaware of it, is that politics can be eliminated, that faction and difference will just wither away when distorted communication has been eliminated by unmodified data circulated freely among free and equal consumers. Everyone will be on the same page. We'll be back to Eden. This utopian Ooh. fantasy. Now, he's of course, he's talking about free speech here, but he's also talking about the Internet. Um, this utopian fantasy rests on a positive, vaguely perfectionist view of human nature. 
Rather than being doomed by original sin to conflict, prejudice, hatred, and an insatiable will to power, men and women are by nature communitarian, inclined to fellowship and the seeking of a common ground. A memorable Facebook news release written by Mark Zuckerberg a few years back tells the happy and optimistic story. Quote, by enabling people from diverse backgrounds to easily connect and share their lives, we can decrease world conflict in the short and long run. End of quote. The idea is that factions and conflict are simply the unfortunate result of an imperfect communication infrastructure. If we perfect that infrastructure, then communication will be perfect and undistorted, and society will be set on the right path without any further efforts required. As uh, Fish says, talk about magical thinking. This is the doctrine that freedom of information and transparency are all we need. And then he links it to religion. He says, in many versions of Protestantism, parishioners are urged to reject merely human authority in any form and go directly to the pure word of God. For the technophiles, the pure word of God is to be found in data. In fact, what is found in a landscape where data detached from any context abounds, in, well, in fact, what is found in the landscape where data detached from any context uh, abounds is the fracturing of the word into ever proliferating pieces of discourse all existing side by side indifferently approved and without any way of telling which of them are true or at least which have a claim to be true and which are made up out of whole cloth which are fake news his thesis here is that removing the exist uh, gatekeeping procedures will res not result in a fair and open field of transparency in the world but in a field where manipulation and deception find no obstacles I find this to be fascinating because we do seem to come across this idea that if we can just communicate freely, if there's no power structures involved in the dissemination of information, it's a little bit like what WikiLeaks is about, then actually our utopia is around the corner, that that's all what's holding people back are flawed institutions and infrastructures. And that is not a hashtag low anthropology view of things, and I think that Fish is right to draw it out. And yet you could also see this argument being taken in a sort of a way to squash free speech and the dissemination of information. So do you guys resonate with this at all? Absolutely. I mean, it, 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 uh, it reminded me of a book I read probably 15 years ago by Fareed Zakaria, who's kind of a conservative um, Pakistani columnist commentator called The Future of Freedom. And then the second line was illiberal democracies and about how um, – you know, when everything is transparent, when every decision is made public in government, it allows the most vocal minority to take charge of the process and that there's no freedom to actually make any decisions that might be difficult. You know, sometimes you have to make difficult decisions. So, you know, and obviously post Watergate and now with the, you know, Russia collusion, who knows what's going to happen there. I understand the desire for transparency, but it's also true that transparency without grace and, and, and humility and forgiveness just isn't going to work. You know, the, the only people you can be truly transparent with in your life are people who, you know, love you because people who don't are going to rip you to shreds. And it reminded me of the amazing This American Life episode this week, which was called, it was actually called My Effing First Amendment. And it was about sort of political conflict on campus in Nebraska. I listened to that. And sort it was of, good. it was incredible, yeah. right? It was incredible and it was powerful. But my favorite line of that, which was from the host of the podcast, he said, free speech is supposed to be one of the few remaining ideals in American politics that everyone can agree on, right? Free speech, yes, great. Everyone say what they want to say. But free speech doesn't solve political conflicts. It creates them. 
Solving them requires more advanced tools like trust, humility, dialogue, and listening. And those are things that we're just not good at. Mm. But I will say those are things that are profoundly Christian, right? Trust is kind of another way we might say imputation, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe the best in you until proven yeah. otherwise. And, and I have some humility myself. I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to listen more than I speak. But yeah, again, this utopian fantasy that if, if we can all just get together and say whatever we want and, and there's total transparency, then everything will be great. And it's like, no, 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 that's give me a break. <laughs> I mean, those are Christian ideals. I feel like Christians are really bad at that. So, you know, I'm not sure. Like, so everyone else, like, who doesn't even have those ideals, like, I don't even know where it's headed. I mean, for me, this it feels like you know what I experience sometimes in the broader national church, national sort of my whole denomination, where it's like, well, if we can just root out this evil, then it'll all be fixed. Like if we can just fix this part of our institution, then everything will be fine. And, um, you know, it's not, that's not what happens because what we keep forgetting. And I, you know, I think what, um, what we're hearing in this piece is like, we keep forgetting that we're all sinners running the institution. And so it's sort of, um, and this is where I start to sound. There's, um, there's a Facebook page that just does Christian nihilist memes. And I said to my husband, is it bad that this is like my favorite thing on the internet? Um, I mean, this is where I start to sound a little nihilistic, but it's like, you know, we, we actually can't make a perfect world. Like, I know that's like the most obvious thing to say, but I feel like every, like every institution, especially if they have some sort of like, Christian notion, or even just like every institution, just like, you know, in terms of, we expect our government to do this, we expect people to make a more perfect world. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not too dark. Things are less violent than they were a thousand years ago by all accounts. You know what I mean? Um, women have it better. I mean, things are better. Um, but in terms of like eradicating, you know, like the, I'm sorry to rag on the Episcopal church guys, but you know, like, what was it? The millennium goals, we were going to like eradicate poverty or something, you know? I mean, like, what was that like 10 years ago? And where are we? Well, people are still poor, you know, like, Hey, set the bar a little lower, you know, like, how about just have pleasant conversations? Like make that your millennium goal. You know what I mean? I'm just like, it's just, it's funny you say that I got accused of being a nihilist last night on the internet by someone who well, we are nihilist Lebowski. I kind of understand where they're coming from because there's it's a strand of yeah. what we're doing that's pushing back against these projects where Christianity is boiled down to you know kingdom building in a very measurable way. And I really do think that if the church or Christianity is going to have much of a future, it's got to reclaim the hope of you know eternal life, <laughs> like that, that we're not may not get very far in this life, and that that's okay. And right now to say that is to be told you're nihilist, you know and or that you're just just negative, and I like I I do think maybe the the low anthropology right. thing gets gets uh, thing is seems like a hopeless thing. But then, you know, we were talking about today about race and the TED Radio Hour. They reran a episode where they have this Baptist preacher from Boston talk about the miracle in Boston and how he just went out with some elders in his church and just went and started listening to the criminals, not the people who were being victimized in his community, but because there was a lot of murder and 
mugging, but he went and actually talked to all of these criminals and just listened. And it's the same thing as that Craigslist confessional thing we posted a couple times about this past week, and that that is tremendously hopeful. And it is a human being is involved in doing that, but it's not a human being getting out there and lecturing another person or inserting themselves into the uh, you know action steps or breathing down your neck about you know like that lady in Nebraska or whatever it is. It's almost an active passivity and listening to the person, and God sort of does the rest. And there's sort of profound hope in God that's not nihilistic whatsoever. And I commend that video to people. But I'm with Stanley Fish, this idea that if we just sort of unencumber information from people that we're going to have a all get along instead of actually just arming people with more ways to spin things. I don't know what the solution is. I'm not a politician, but... Uh, well, I think it I also know. goes to, to, what our, to, to what our utopian vision is, because what I found is that the places that I've lived that maybe are, are the closest to something like a utopian ideal, and, and this is just me talking, but like, I love, you know, Manhattan is beautiful and pretty wealthy, and now it's clean, and there's no, uh, you know, the, the landscaping is amazing, and Central Park is beautiful, and there's no graffiti anywhere, and, and really all the, all the poor people have been pushed to the other, you know, there's no more poverty, and it is the, it is the most deeply anxious place I've ever lived in my entire life, you know, because you just, people can't live up to this outer vision of, of perfection and beauty. And then maybe what the utopian ideal is less is, um, you know, Elysium, if you remember that terrible uh, movie from Matt Damon movie from a few years ago, it's not Elysium. It's like Utopia is actually an AA meeting, you know, where people come and can speak their truth and listen to each other and love each other. And that's not so beautiful, externally speaking, not but correct emotionally. each other. Not correct each other. Maybe that's a more apt vision of, of some sort of, uh, you know, ideal. What is that? There's a quote. I think I've used it in a piece for Mockingbird in it. And I remember researching it was from like um, an early maybe radio evangelist in the 50s. And he and it actually opens a book that I'm anyway, he says something like, you know, when the streets are all clean and the children are all home on time and the, you know, the the husbands all go to work and the wives all cook or whatever, then you'll know that the devil is one. <laughs> It's a great quote. You, you sure know? you didn't like, write that? It's like <laughs> when everything is like perfect, I know, right? But when it's everything the is perfect and orderly, fear of e e yeah, I mean, maybe I hate that phrase because it always makes women feel like oh, shit. Sorry. But because <laughs> we're all like, am I a step for wife? Do I know step for wives? Who can I judge? It's Nobody like, is. That's anyway, the point. But, but like, but it's, but it's, it does, it, you know, it is this thing of like, well, when everything is fixed, either we're in heaven, which we're not, you know what I mean? So where are we, mm. you know, when, when we no longer have need of a God who suffers on a cross and dies for us, where exactly do we find ourselves? I mean, this is the, you know, this is the question. So I think we should end then with a note of profound hope in the midst of a horrific situation for an instance of a, a real example, I think, of how God works to bring about hope and deliverance in the midst of the total intransience and impasse of life. It's that testimonial that, Sarah, you sent along. It's in Christianity Today. It's written by a woman named Kim Fook Fan Thi. Okay. 
And the headline is, These Bombs Led Me to Christ. And it's the testimony of the woman who was in that famous picture from Vietnam of the naked girl running, you know, in total agony and despair while the napalm is in the back and there's soldiers behind her. It's the one of the great pictures of human agony of the 20th century. And she talks about the immeasurable pain of her life. And she says, even now, some 40 years later, I'm still receiving treatment for burns that cover my arms, back, and neck. But the emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure. And yet looking back, I realized that those same bombs that brought so much suffering also brought great healing. Those bombs led me to Christ. She goes on to say how she was raised in the cow die religion, which I'd never heard of, but that's, I've never, never heard of a lot of things, but but it basically sounds like Unitarian universalism. She says that, that, that you are God and God is you was the mantra that had been ingrained in her, but that it kind of wasn't enough, especially in light of the profound suffering that she'd experienced. So she says, but growing up, um, in that context, her very person, uh, she could not turn to a friend. She was as alone as a person could be, for nobody wished to befriend me. I was toxic, mm-hmm. and everyone knew it. To be near me was to be near hardship. I was alone atop a mountaintop of rage. Why was I made to wear these awful scars? Then she talks about finally reading the New Testament and realizing that there was a side to Jesus that she'd never seen. She said, I'd never been exposed to the side of Jesus, the wounded one, the one who bore scars. Perhaps he could help me make sense of my pain and at last come to terms with my scars. My salvation experience happened, fittingly enough, on Christmas Eve. It was 1982, and I was attending a special worship service at a small church in Saigon, mere miles from the street where my journey had begun, where that picture had been taken. The pastor spoke about how Christmas is not about the gifts we give to each other so much as it is about the one gift in particular, the gift of Jesus Christ. How desperately I needed peace. How ready I was for love and joy. I had so much hatred in my heart, so much bitterness. I wanted to let go of all my pain. I wanted to pursue life instead of holding fast to fantasies of death. I wanted this Jesus. So when the pastor finished speaking, I stood up, stepped outside into the aisle, and made my way to the front of the sanctuary to say yes to Jesus Christ. Nearly half a century has passed since I found myself running, frightened, naked, and in pain down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors of that day, the bombs, the fire, the fear, nor will I forget the years of torment that followed. But when I think about how far I have come, I realize there is nothing greater or more powerful than the love of our blessed Savior. My faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who have hurt and scarred me. It has enabled me to pray for my enemies rather than curse them. And it has enabled me not just to tolerate them, but to truly love them. I will forever bear the scars of that day, and that picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil of which humanity is capable. That picture defined my life. In the end, it gave me a mission, a ministry, a cause. Today, Mm -hmm. I thank God for that picture. Today, I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road. Good Lord. So preachers, just pull this out and read it. You don't have to say anything My else. Goodness. Like this is your sermon. I don't even know what the gospel is, but this is your sermon. Yeah. I, I was struck by so much in this. I have to tell you, I, you know, I have a little girl and the photograph of her. I've, I know this photograph, but I just looked at it again and I'm like, Oh my God, it looks just like Annie. You know, it's this naked little girl. Like, I mean, it's just so, Oh my gosh, it's such a gut level thing. The piece of this that really stuck out for me, and this will make me sound like a judgmental person because I am 
is that it's very important that children have a foundation of faith. <laughs> it just is. I know I'm sounding like I'm on one of those crazy radio hours that you like flip your channel to, but it is actually really important that your kids have a foundation of faith because, you know, the description she has of this religion, I mean, she says, you know, looking back, I see my family's religion as something of a charm bracelet slung around my wrist, each dangling bauble representing yet another possibility of divine assistance. I mean, see also mm. essential oils. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what is this? But like what, like a lot of parents do right now, which is to say, you figure it out. We're going to light some candles. Like, you know, you do you, you seem great. Like you've got a light inside of you. And then something terrible happens. And, you know, look, not everybody's going to have the experience this woman had, but something terrible happens. And not only is there no context for the grief, but there's also no relief from the expectation. Mm. I, I think, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge advocate for raising people in Christianity for a lot of reasons. But for me, first and foremost, that reason is the same reason my mother raised me in Christianity, which is when life gets hard, you need something to fall back on. And this woman, by the grace of God, was able to recognize that what she had been given was not going to be enough. And mm -hmm. Jesus sought her out in the wilderness and brought her in. And I just think her testimony is incredible. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a whole lot to add. It's, it's a, I will say I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to parents who may have been wounded by their own particular church and thought to themselves, I'm going to take my kids and run as far away as I possibly can from this. Because let's face it, um, Christians are not always the best ambassadors for Jesus. Um, but that being said, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more than what comes, you know, when it comes to sort of like authentic gracious Christianity that is, is about his perfection and not ours and his love for us as we mm -hmm. are and all of our mm -hmm. sinful brokenness, there's nothing better, you mm -hmm. know, that I think is, is an incredibly helpful foundation for parenting, for marriage, for relationships. Mm -hmm. And, and then just beyond just the message, like, guess what? We do believe in the Holy spirit. You know, there actually is God is with you. You know, right. this isn't just a message. This is right. a reality. Right. Um, and you're going to, God is going to show up in your life and he's going to do things and he's going to guide you and be with you. And that's actually something parents need to hear. Yes. You know, I've given a talk before where I've said, Hey, guess what? You're just a surrogate parent. Right. You know, you're, you're just, you've been entrusted with these kids. You can do the best you can. You're going to blow it in a lot of ways. But <laughs> yes. remember at the end of the day, your kids have a heavenly father who loves them infinitely more than you ever could. And who is infinitely more powerful than you will ever be. Yeah. And you can't change your kids, but he can. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're freaking out and your teenagers or college kids are rebelling and you don't know what to do, just pray, you know, pray to their heavenly father who knows and loves them uh, more than you ever, more than you ever could and loves you more than you, than you could ever realize. And he sort of is holding your family in his hand. I think we need to start a campaign that's just like, go to church and ignore the Christians. You know what I mean? <laughs> That seriously is like unless this, they're us. <laughs> yeah, unless they're us. No. That is the selling point to me of the Episcopal Church because it's not our preaching. Let's be honest. It's the fact that you can roll into the Episcopal Church, sit on a pew in the back. Hopefully, most people will leave you alone. Unless you're a young family, then they're not going to stop talking to you. But you can hopefully sit in the back <laughs> on a pew yourself. And even if the sermon is abysmal, you're going to hear the promise of the liturgy spoken over you. Like you're going to hear the comfortable words. Yeah. Like you're going, you know. Yes. And that's, I think, that is this gift that you can give to 
yourself and your kids. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like take her testimony off on this me doing a rant about kids going to church, but hearing her describe her upbringing, her religion, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the American, we're just going to let our kids figure it out religion. Like that's exactly what she's describing. So, well, these bombs led me to Christ. Yeah. I mean, who, where, where else do you hear something like that? I mean, that is such a. Uh, literal bombs are going off as we speak, but you know, bombs are going off in people's lives. I, I just think mm. of, I think of the people I was speaking to this past week who, uh, you know, what m- woman who died very suddenly in the middle of her fifties and like a, a bomb went off and somehow to have the guts, the wisdom, the foolishness, the maybe the Holy spirit inspired power to say something like that actually is the road that right. you're grateful for. That gives me profound hope. Mm. And, um, and uh, especially when I hear it spoken from someone who, uh, like this, like uh, Kim. So anyway, guys, thanks for being with us. We'll be back in a couple weeks. And uh, yeah, oh, the, the conference recordings should be up any second. I'm waiting for Apple to approve some kind of feed, but we'll get there. But I hope you guys have a great week and weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Dave. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.